Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin. And if you are curious at all about how some of America's largest corporations have been able to push their agendas in ways that other companies never could because of their special relationship with government and government officials, then I think you're going to enjoy this interview. I certainly did. Now, my guest today is Bart Elmore. Bart is the author of two books that cover two of America's most influential corporations, the first being Coca-Cola. That book is called Citizen Coke, and the second being Monsanto. That book is called Seed Money. Now, Coca-Cola, we know. Everybody knows Coca-Cola, one of the world's largest corporations got where it was through very effective market muscle, very, very effective lobbying, and some incredibly strategic acquisition of public natural resources in a way that other companies never could. And I'm talking about the cocoa leaf. They have a very special relationship with the cocoa leaf that any other company in the world would never be able to have. And we dive into why and how. In addition, how Coca-Cola secured monopolies on things like American troops and was able to push their agenda, become front and center in American life in ways that other companies couldn't. Monsanto, another great example of a corporation that's been able to keep products on the shelf that are horrifyingly toxic and detrimental to society, but through strategic relationships, uh, as Bart calls it, a revolving door of government officials and company executives, they've been able to navigate some crazy waters. So this is timely today, I think more than ever, because it's important to question of the products on our shelf. It's important to question your food supply, your water supply. I find myself more and more uh, critical of uh, all the products around me. And for good reason, you know, this gets back to why I started my podcast, right? Hunting personal sovereignty. Now I started from a standpoint of financial sovereignty, right? True independence, right? Financial independence, financial confidence. But this is a thread that we can pull and wrap around any compartment of our life, including our food supply. And we should, right? I truly believe that we are all on our own out there. Nobody has our back, not the FDA, not the EPA. Uh, and that's not bad news. It's good news because it puts you in the driver's seat, right? It puts you in control, right? But you have to do some work. And it's important to ask questions like I get to ask with Bart today. This conversation is the reason that everybody should start a podcast because you read a book, you love the book, you get to talk to the author. There's nothing better. So I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. This is Bart Elmore on The Jay Martin Show. Enjoy. All right, what's up, guys? Jay Martin here, investor and CEO of Cambridge House. And I'm joined right now by Bart Elmore, the author of two very interesting books that I want to dive into today. And they're going to lead us down some fun rabbit holes. So I'm excited for this conversation. And Bart, thanks so much for coming on and chatting with me. Jay, thanks a lot for having me. It's a pleasure. You know, a good place to start for anybody who's not familiar with uh, Citizen Coke or Seed Money, two books that I think are um, increasing in importance today. Maybe that's my opinion. But, you know, why don't we start with uh, who you are and how you spend your time, Bart? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. We just started our first set of classes here at Ohio State University where I teach. And I had to tell the students I'm teaching this history of the environment and uh, class environmental history. And I told them I didn't even know it existed when I went to grad school. I went to school at the University of Virginia to study the history of the American South, actually. Ended up finding this field of environmental history in my second year of graduate work. And basically, the field is interested in the relationship between humans and the environment, both the ways in which nature shapes uh, the course of human events, but also the ways in which humans can impact the environment as well. 
And I just fell in love. I, we were talking uh, at one point, you know, I was a paddler, a, a kayaker, a, you know, a, a backpacker and a, a climber. And, and, and I was always really passionate about the environment. And wow, to fuse this with the field of history, something I loved as well. It was just, it was awesome. So I didn't want to leave the Southern component out of what I wanted to work on. So I, I chose a Southern business to write about for my dissertation, which became that book, Citizen Coke, The Making of Coca-Cola Capitalism. And essentially what I wanted to do was say, okay, here's this company from my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, Coca-Cola. What is its environmental footprint? You know, how, and really a, a more a business question of how did Coke end up acquiring all the natural resources it needed at such low cost that it could be everywhere? You know, that to me was a fascinating question. And so I wrote that book that looked at each of those ingredients, kind of went around the world. And that led me to the other book, Seed Money, because I was trying to figure out how caffeine, uh, Coke sourced their caffeine. It was, it was ungoogleable at the time. Mm. And I thought, okay, well, let's look into this. And it turned out that it was this chemical company from St. Louis that today we think of as a seed company, you know, uh, Monsanto that, that created all these genetically engineered crops uh, in the 90s and onwards. But it started really supplying Coca-Cola with caffeine and, and saccharin, an artificial sweetener. So that was the segue into that second project. After I finished the Coke book, I wrote this history of Monsanto from start to finish. And uh, here I am. I'm, I'm still alive to tell the tale. So, uh, yeah. Huh. yeah, it was a long journey. <laughs> why, why do you say that, still alive to tell the tale? Elaborate on that a little bit. I could guess, but share with my audience. Yeah, sure. I was naive just when I started, I think, as someone who, you know, didn't think too much about the scale of these firms and just how powerful they were and also how sensitive they might be to a graduate student writing about their history and their past in a way that might affect their stock price or affect their bottom line. In the case of Coca-Cola, you know, when it came out, I would write a couple op-ed pieces and various things, and they Coca-Cola would write in response to the pieces I would write. And, you know, saying that this history is not very good and you, know, you shouldn't pay attention to it. In fact, if people pick up the paperback, You'll see Coke's non-endorsement on the back of the book. I saw that. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I, was, I was impressed. This book uh, is, you know, lacks complete understanding of our history, basically. And, you know, it was interesting. I remember being, you know, I was young. I was, I was in my 20s when I was writing that first book. It took about, you know, eight years to write. Hmm. And uh, that was nerve wracking to, to, to have that kind of back and forth and to wonder whether uh, would there be litigation or would there be some kind of backlash. But a great moment. Jay, that happened was I wrote a piece for Fortune magazine, and Coca-Cola was doing this routine. They, they, they wrote this response immediately to Fortune, and they wanted to get it published. But Fortune actually refused to publish that response, because unlike other public outlets, they called their bluff. They said, okay, you say that there's things that are inaccurate here, but tell us what's inaccurate. You know, show us what's the problem. And they sent me a paraphrase of the email they got from Coke response was, well, we, we disagree with his interpretation, but we don't, but nothing that he says is really inaccurate. And they said, well, that's not good enough, you uh -huh. know, and refused to publish them. So, you know, in a way, I was nervous about that. And one other story, Jay, about this with Monsanto, I, I, I chose not to give a lot of public talks or do op-eds when I was writing the Monsanto book, because I wanted to have access, ability to talk to people openly and freely about the business. Um, but I gave one talk at a university out West. And the day after I gave that talk, I think even that evening, I got a call from the university. And the university told me that they'd saw on their caller ID 
literally it said Monsanto on the caller ID. And uh, much like we see in the Coke case, you know, they, they wanted to give a rebuttal to my talk. Okay. The baffling about that was I was in the university. I, I was wondering how on earth did they even know about this talk? And it turned out it was probably Facebook Live or some kind of feed that they were following and, and did that. And I remember kind of handshaking. I have two kids, you know, and thinking about, okay, what, is, what does this mean for me personally as someone who writes about these companies in a very straightforward way? So I, that's kind of what I'm hinting at. Uh, this, this is a type of work, I think, where it's challenging because you're dealing with your own personal exposure in a way um, as a writer. And, and you really have to be careful. You have to make sure that your, your stuff is backed up with facts. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I feel good about both of these books in that case. Well, yeah, I guess it speaks to that. It's, uh fortune called coca-cola's bluff asked them to elaborate on exactly what is it about this article that you disagree with and they weren't able to provide enough to convince fortune to publish the rebuttal and yeah it's an interesting dance you're doing kind of toying with the underbelly of some of the most influential corporations in the world um makes sense that you'd want to stay off the radar during when you were authoring the book about monsanto called seed money now, the story of Coke is is interesting because what struck me is how they were able to generate some very interesting monopolies. And two that come to mind, and I'll stay super high level, I'd love you to elaborate on this, these, and then we're going to take it in a new direction. The monopoly on Coca leaves, first of all, like, let's talk about that, right? And uh, there's a handful of stakeholders in that monopoly that are impacted. It's not as straightforward as you might think. And another interesting monopoly that you spoke about was the monopoly on U.S. troops, right? Uh, Coca-Cola was the beverage of choice. And so could you just frame those two for me a little bit? Yeah. And can I also say, Jay, thank you for reading. And uh, I do a lot of interviews, and it's really nice to have people who've really gone in and (laughs) know the material. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And and because the Coca thing to me was also one of the most fascinating stories, right? And you got to remember when I was writing that book, I took the back of a Coke can and made that my table of content. So I was traveling around the world looking at that ingredient list and saying, okay, where do they get their sugar? That was the, that was the writer's question. And I think any good writer, you got to have a question that, that drives you, okay? How do they get the sugar? And I just dove into that and spent you know two years researching that. Okay, how do they get caffeine? And in this case, I was like, well, how do they get the coca leaf? Coca-Cola, I mean, it's in the name, right? And of course, I think most people know that Coca-Cola removed any trace of cocaine, the alkaloid that's in the coca leaf that is uh, grown in the Andes uh, from their drink. But most people might not know that the coca leaf flavor, the coca flavor of that leaf without the cocaine in it remained in the drink. It was part of what's known as merchandise number five or secret ingredient number five. And I was super intrigued by this because I wanted to know how did they get this, you know, and, and, and to that bigger question, Jay, about you're talking about a company that sells 1.9 billion servings of its product every single day, every day, every, every day. Right. And it's like, OK, most writers that weren't environmental historians were like, what's the marketing and the advertising? Look at how skillful they were in the boardroom. That's great. But if you can't get the natural resource at low cost to be on every shelf, and by 1950, you know, it was still being sold for five cents, you know, that, that's a cheap product. You've got to have cheap raw materials. And that's the question that, that, that really drove me there is how did they do that? How did they get it at such low cost? And it turns out that they essentially achieved a monopsony, you know, which to your audience is, is more familiar than some of my students who don't have a business background. But 
um, you know, this single buyer access to a, a, a raw material, and in this case, the coca leaf. And basically, what Coke did throughout the 20th century was fight for not only national laws in the U.S. that would ban the import of coca leaves into the United States, they also fought on the international scale at the UN and other places. Coke was there to try and ban the sale of coca leaves around the world. Arguing that coca leaves, of course, could be turned into cocaine that would be a narcotic that would be de- uh, you know, dangerous for society. They went so far even in those discussions in the 60s to try and push for the banning of indigenous chewing of coca leaves, which goes back thousands of years, hundreds of years, you know, to uh, religious practices in Peru and Colombia, which to me, when I saw that was so startling, you know, the, the company from the United States that's going to benefit from this product was actively arguing to try and prevent traditional, you know, chewing practices from going on. And so, yeah, it was crazy. By, by the 60s, you know, you have this kind of international lockdown on the sale of coca leaves around the world. And Coke, though, has this special exemptions mm-hmm. under U.S. law to bring in coca leaves in the United States. So if the question is, how did they get coca leaves at such low cost? The answer is, when you cut out all the other potential buyers by negotiating yeah. and lobbying in that f- fashion, man, you're in a good spot to name your price. Yes. And, and they did so. And um, one other thing on that is that, you know, Pepsi and these other companies, they did want access to the coca leaves. And this exemption, you know, was essentially upheld for just Coke, while a lot of, a lot of companies said, hey, we'd like access to this too. So it was a, it's, it's a great example of how Coke was able to kind of corner a market in a way and, uh, and, and get access to something that no one else could get. Um, yeah, because it becomes the equivalent of a patent on a natural resource. Right. It's better I mean, than a pat. It's almost better, right? In the sense that you don't, you know, if nobody can access it, it this is great. I mean, probably as good as a patent is a better way to put it. But you're mm-hmm. right. You know, put a fine point on that. I, I spent time with people who represent the coqueros in Peru. I traveled there. I think any good writer who's going to write about something should go and see the story that they're talking about. They shouldn't just depend on secondhand sources. And uh, you know, the the thing that I think irks everybody is it's in the name. You know, it's Coca-Cola, and yet this history is completely not acknowledged by the firm. You know, there's a, a, a interview that I did where you, it's kind of a back and forth between me and an archivist at Coca-Cola, where the guy is just literally like bending over, you know, in different directions to try and get around the question of does Coke have Coca in it? Right. You know, and I just don't have to, I don't have to do that. The documents are there. They're in the National Archives, declassified, you know, DEA documents. You can see this very clearly. This is not conspiracy theory stuff. And yet mm. the company wants to kind of be hush-hush about it. So that's that. What struck me most about this is they're able to negotiate, and I want to say strong arm, a monopsony on the purchase of coca leaves from Peru, mm-hmm. but not for some medical application or essential product or service. We're talking about a soft drink, right? Right. Like yeah. as as often, you know what I mean? Like as, as non-essential as it gets, and you could argue it's actually, you know, a catalyst for a major public health crisis. But that, that aside, what I'm curious about is how do you think this was argued and negotiated to, I mean, you share a little bit on that, the, the you know, they, they, they push the perception that coca leaves are used to produce cocaine. This is bad. We need to protect the public from this product, but let us have it right. 
for right. super recreational, non-essential product. And that's yeah. the thing. Like if it was for something medicinal grade, something essential, you could frame that in your mind and say it makes sense, right? Yeah. But so how do you think, therefore, this, this deal was negotiated and argued? Like what, speculate, yeah. unless you know. It was, super, it, was super, it was super complicated. So to your point, I mean, one angle that they took was to say, look, we, you are going to be bringing in coca leaves for legitimate medicinal uses, uh, U.S. government. And, and that's true. You know, the U.S. government was still bringing in leaves that could be used at hospitals for various surgeries and things like that. And so one of the things they negotiated was, was to say, we just want to make sure that when those medicinal leaves are brought in, we can use the, the flavor that's left over afterwards. And that seemed like a no brainer. OK, well, if we're going to bring in leaves and they're going to be coming in anyways and you want this flavoring extract, no big deal. But to your point, the thing that was harder to negotiate, and this is in our in our laws, there are medicinal leaves that can be brought in, but there's another category and they're called special leaves. And I actually love that title, special leaves. And those special leaves are essentially solely for Coca-Cola. And the reason was, as we said, Coke's growth was so exponential in the 20th century that those medicinal leaves weren't enough. They, weren't they needed enough. more, right? And so they were they had to broker that special deal and i think that's to your point you know they had to argue like we need to bring in these leaves because we need it and i think that actually shows you something more as you said how did that how did how could they do that a lot about their strategy as a business in terms of the revolving door of government officials and coke officials mm -hmm. you know really trying hard at times either to take people that were in government and then bring them into coca cola I'm thinking of Farley as a great example of this, you know, somebody who worked high in the Democratic Party, who becomes the head of the, the kind of export arm of Coca-Cola. And then the reverse, you know, finding ways to put people like Ed Forio, you know, another executive inside the company on, in, in, on the sugar rationing board of the, during World War II to help negotiate how sugar was going to be rationed in the United States. And really working that, and same, you see this with Monsanto too, making sure that those people are, there's a kind of, uh, you know, access via, via people who are going back and forth between state and, sure. and private entities. Sure. And I think that plays out in this case for sure. Because mm. at the end of the day, it's, it's a conversation in a boardroom, right? And so yeah. relationships matter, understanding the angles matters. So that, that's, that's exactly where I wanted to get this to because Okay, so let's now go to the uh, the monopoly on on uh, on veterans, the monopoly on troops, and yeah. Coca Cola became the only beverage. Provider. Yeah, I, I, like, I like how you put it, a monopoly on troops. I don't think I've ever said it that way, but it's true. It's like you've got this kind of monopoly going on the supply side, but then there was also like the demand side. Like that's the smartness of Coke was figuring out how do we make sure we have we're we're the brand that's in front of a particularly important group of people, and I can't think of a more important group of people than World War II veterans, you know, if you, yeah, because not because the long term effects of that are, are hard to to understate that if if people are drinking Coke on D-Day and they come home and their kids saying they're going to drink a Pepsi, that, that Pepsi is getting slapped <laughs> out of their hand. You know, you're not drinking Pepsi and you're not I, smoking anything but Marlboro's, you know, and you're only eating Hershey, which is also part of the rations. Yeah, that these guys got. But yeah, you're right. I mean, so it was crazy to see that. Coke, essentially, and this is interesting to your point, how did it happen? 
you know, it, it mattered that someone like Dwight Eisenhower, who was the Supreme Allied commander, liked Coke, you know, you could argue was courted by Coke for years, too. And, and when he was president, again, you know, Coke was very careful to be very close to the, the executive branch and the people in power. But Supreme Allied Commander Dwight Eisenhower writes a letter to basically the government saying, we want billions and billions of Coca-Colas. And he didn't say Pepsi. He didn't say, you know, these other things. He said Coca-Cola. And the argument at that time was sugar was energy. We think of sugar now as like this terrible thing that, you know, it's, it's a health problem and obesity and things like that. But during the war, it was like, this is immediate fuel, gasoline that we can provide to our troops on the front lines. And, you know, Coke ends up getting these exemptions because you've got people like Eisenhower and others. And again, it's, it's a two-way street. Coke is also negotiating this, saying, look, you should do this. And they have people inside government who's, who are negotiating this. But it was really unique. Basically, most companies that were selling sugar were capped at 80% of their pre-war sugar consumption during the war. They couldn't use but up to 80% of what they were using in 1941, roughly 1940, during the war. The idea was we need sugar for the troops, so you're going to be capped. Okay. Coke, because of the exemptions they got, was allowed to supply as much sugar, get as much sugar as they needed, as long as they were supplying the troops. And because the, the Coca-Cola was the company that was getting these contracts, Coke was getting, yeah, they were kept at 80% of their domestic market. You know, they could only use 80% of their sugar at the domestic market. But they had this huge uh, international market with, with troops overseas. And they could get as much sugar as they needed as long as they were servicing troops. Mm. And so they explode in sales, whereas Pepsi doesn't get this deal. And there's a great letter in the National Archives from the head of Pepsi saying, basically, WTF, you know, right. like, how could you be giving these guys this contract and deal that allows them to provide, you know, their products to the troops and keep us at 80%? We're going to lose. And for folks who want to know why Pepsi is number two and Coke's number one, it's a big stop in the story. Like, yes, Coke got a, got a huge deal and Pepsi did not. And uh and it took years. You could argue Michael Jackson and the endorsement of Michael Jackson for Pepsi to get back in the game in the 1980s. Right. 1980s. Yeah. But they were so far behind because of that deal. And, um, and it's just another example of, I think, the state and how important government and relationships to the government were to a brand like Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Those relationships are maybe where I want to focus on as we jump into your next book, Seed Money, right? you know, following the the thread of how products end up on the shelf, right? Regardless yeah. of maybe their nefarious ingredients or impact, right? right. So give, give us the highlight uh, overview of seed money. And it's the story of Monsanto and the relationship with Coca-Cola, which is really interesting. But give us the give us the overview. Yeah. And as I said, I was writing the cookbook and I was trying to figure out how Coke got their caffeine. And it took me to St. Louis, Missouri, to the archives and this is important for people to know, you know, as a business scholar, you're looking for a base of resources to be able to tell your story. It took me almost a decade to finish this book on Monsanto. And you know, as a writer, that you have to have corporate records. And so what was what was the great moment for me when writing the cookbook was arriving in St. Louis and getting access to Monsanto's corporate records. 
that was a deal. That was like an uh, like jaw dropping moment. I said, whoa, I now have access to their corporate records, um, which isn't always granted, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so that was when I started this Monsanto book, thinking about their origins as a company that was providing caffeine and chemicals to the soft drink industry in 1901. And then what I wanted to do was say, well, how the heck did they become a company that be, that became so big in agriculture? You know, the largest seller of genetically engineered seeds in the world. Like, how did, how did they get from that, caffeine mm-hmm. and saccharin, to that? And that became the book. That was really the story, is answering that question. That's why I call it seed money. Um, in fact, it was a really good friend of mine in Charlottesville, Virginia. His hand was shaking. He had a beer in his hand. He said dude, I've got the title of this book for you. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he's in business, you know? And he was like, it's seed money. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's brilliant. Yes. So yes. Jesse, Jesse Pappas uh, gets all the credit there because it really was about, you know, everyone wants to talk about the seed business of Monsanto, but I wanted to get that seed money story. Like, how did they even grow? How did they get to the point where they could have that kind of power mm. on our food system? And that was really the question that drove that book. What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note, if you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways, lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. Now back to the conversation. What, what today would you say are the, are the biggest controversies behind Monsanto and the products that we find on the shelf and, you know, post-acquisition of Bayer, et cetera. But like what today do you think is, is an example of how, call it the wool being pulled over the public's eyes to keep a product on the shelf that we know is horrible for us, but it remains there regardless. What, what yeah. are some examples that come to mind? And I think that's a great follow-up question because that was the question I had to answer. If they had seed money that made them so powerful, how do they survive all these huge controversies that I knew were part of their history? And that was part of the questions. Like, how did they survive, for example, Agent Orange, right? Yes. They were the largest supplier of this herbicide called Agent Orange to the U.S. military during the Vietnam War. It was contaminated with a compound called dioxin, which even the industry itself in 1965 said, and this is a quote, is the most toxic compound we've ever seen. So how did a company that was saying that internally or talking about that internally, who's selling this to the US military, it's gonna be sprayed in Vietnam. It's still in the environment today. I traveled to Vietnam to see that story. Mm. It's still affecting people's lives. How did they survive, you know, and then become this company that, that can provide our food? Yeah. Uh, same thing with PCBs, polychlorinated biphenols. They were the only producer of this chemical in the United States, PCBs. Some people may be familiar with it, but if you're not, it was a material that was used in insulating, uh, kind of as an insulating fluid in most transformers, electrical equipment. But it was used in, not just in that, but in almost everything. Like it was in paint that was in pools. It was in the paint and silos that held our food. It was in uh, carbonless paper. It was in, it was in uh, Christmas trees, you know, artificial Christmas. It was everything. And once again, it's described as a di- dioxin-like compound, you know, just has all these Darth Vader-like effects on your body and, and health. Um, produced by only this company and sprayed, put on everything, 
clearly identified in the 1960s as a super toxic product. How did they survive that? Like, how does a company not just survive one, you think about asbestos, like, okay, a lot of these companies failed. I mean, Monsanto gets through Agent Orange, PCBs. Um, they also made DDT, you know, which was, of course, you know, Rachel Carson and, and concerns about that. So that was what was interesting to me is like they made all some of these the most notorious compounds the world's ever seen. And yet, yeah, uh, come out the other side, not only looking good, but as you said, looking so good that Bayer, you know, this this pharma uh, life sciences company in Germany acquires them in 2018 saying, wow, this is a great company to buy. Um, right. What gives is, is, I think, the question of the book. 100%. Yeah. Now, did you uncover a similar, as you put it, a revolving door of government officials and corporate executives and relationships that did you find that path with Monsanto? Yeah, absolutely. A very cozy relationship between government <laughs> and, and especially the regulators and the regulated. I think even the science that's being used to uh, decide whether certain compounds Roundup, of course, I know is on everyone's mind that the herbicide that uh, became a blockbuster brand for the company, they, they basically create this in 1970s, and it's the most widely used herbicide in the world by the 1990s. You, know, you look back at, this, at how this gets approved and, and, and just the ways in which there's kind of this, uh, some of the science is coming from the very company that's being regulated. <laughs> uh, I, I teach at Ohio State University. One of the things I filed when writing this book was a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act request with my own institution. Talk about a moment where you fear for your own, uh, you know, future. I'm basically not only looking at Monsanto, but my own employer about the relationships between them. And sure enough, you know, millions of dollars being spent by Monsanto on agricultural science here that looks right. like public science, right? Sure, sure. And, and so for me, yes, uh, you see a very similar story of just a lack of firewalls, really, between mm. people that are being regulated and the agencies that are doing the regulating. Uh, ex explain that to me, a lack of firewalls, please. Yeah, I think, you know, I think a good example would be dicamba, uh, an herbicide that's come out recently that that's really problematic. It, it, it spreads off target. And when you spray it in hot conditions, it vaporizes and will drift onto neighboring farms. And if you don't have Monsanto, now Bayer's seeds that make your crops resistant to dicamba, it will, uh, it'll kill your crops. I mean, it, the dicamba can spread and damage your crops. So one of the questions was how on earth did this get approved? You know, and one- So we're talking about a, a herbicide that, yeah. th that essentially, uh, the travels in hot weather, landing on neighboring crops that really vaporizes them, if I understand correctly, right? It, it, it doesn't so much vaporize, it, it vaporizes and goes up into the air. If you can imagine this, it's, you're spraying it in June or July in Arkansas, okay? And it, because it's so hot, this stuff turns into little droplets and it jumps up into, and there can even be inversions where like full like clouds of this stuff will drift and spread onto neighboring farms. And when it hits those that those plants that are on other farms that don't have crops, and this is the key, that are genetically engineered to tolerate dicamba. And that's right. what Monsanto was selling, right? Not only the herbicide dicamba, but, but the seeds that would make your plants resistant to dicamba. 
Yeah. You're going to get hit and it can hit everything. It hits vineyards, it hits watermelon plants, it can hit peach orchards. I mean, the number of farmers who have been upset about this for the last half decade is thousands of thousands of farmers who call, by the way, and will say, they'll stop their tractor in the middle of harvest, you know, on top of a hill to call me to say, this is outrageous that this is an approved product for use on our fields. And, you know, in my investigative research on this, uh, getting access to people even inside the company, you know, one of the things that was clear was the ways in which regulators were relying on data that was coming from Monsanto to decide right. about whether how volatile it was. Okay. And, and, you know, you can't do that, as we see in this case. Clearly, it volatilizes. Clearly, it vaporized. But Monsanto said, no, no, no. Our studies show that it doesn't. Well, if an independent agency had come in and done that study, they would have seen this and it probably would have prevented the problem. So that's where we need this. We need a much finer firewall between the entities who have vested interest in getting this stuff approved and okay. you know, the agencies that are regulating it. Now, what's, and, and you know, I, I know after the acquisition, uh, after Bayer bought Monsanto, they, you know, applied a bit of lip service here and uh, product like Roundup, I believe, is supposed to be taken off the shelves from consumers like you and I uh, by 2023. However, it's still going to be used commercially. Is that correct? So this is a good like public stunt. Say, don't worry. We acknowledge this is unsafe. So we're pulling it off the shelves, the retail shelves. But but obviously, there's no slowdown in commercial applications. Do I understand that correctly? That's correct. Exactly. So and just to back up a little bit on that, I have to tell you, you got to imagine writing this book. It's like being an investor and watching the implosion of a business that you've just invested in or something. You know, in my case, I'm writing about this firm and Monsanto. And then I'm like, I had no idea that Bayer was going to buy them. You know, right. you got to remember, I started this, you know, as I said, almost a decade ago. So that was long before those talks really even were underway. and. I'm watching as I'm writing Bayer, and I'm looking at all these documents and all these discussions I'm having and internal discussions with whistleblowers and other people. And I'm like, what is Bayer doing? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, honestly, that's how, what I was saying as a writer, I thought this is a bad move. And they're doing this in the summer of 2018. And they buy Bayer, they buy Monsanto, Bayer does. And then the first Roundup case, then we should be clear, this was a case involving a California gardener who sprayed Roundup every day um, or, or you know, on the regular basis and uh, developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, argued that his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma was linked to his exposure to Roundup. And he wins that case uh, just, you know, just right after that merger happens. Yeah, right. And their stock price tumbles yeah a second case comes to uh, court in california and it's also finds in favor of the plaintiff for hundreds of millions of dollars and then by the spring you know there's a third case and i'm just watching this happen and you're watching that ticker go like this yeah i even had i bought a bear stock so i could go to the shareholders meeting and uh All right. And you're just watching your stock price go down. <laughs> but as a writer, I was, you know, I was just interested in what's happening. And yeah. they were worth, Bayer was worth the same amount of money that they paid to acquire, basically to acquire 
Monsanto, by the end of all those three cases coming out against them, they had lost essentially, you know, I think by the end of it all, it was like a half of their market cap. I mean, I, it's hard to think of scenarios, you know, where this happens uh, on a day-to-day basis, right? And so, yeah, so Monsanto, they better had to do something, you know, and it was unclear what they were going to do. And so their move, as you said, was, okay, look, we're going to agree to remove uh, Roundup, this herbicide, from, you know, the Home Depot, Lowe's, things like that. But it's going to continue to be used on farms, which scale. is the main use at scale, yes. which is huge, right? Yeah. And so it's not really a solution. No, it's a marketing tactic, right? It is. It is. And the other, but the other thing they had to do, though, was to settle all these cases. Just to be clear, there were 120,000 filed and about to be filled cases Mm. around 2018, 2019 um, related to Roundup. How could you miss that in the diligence when you're buying Monsanto? Like, that's a pretty important data point that this is sitting in the periphery. And note this. You know, the CEO before Werner Baumann, who is the current CEO and chairman, he did not think they should acquire Monsanto for precisely the reasons you're talking about, the legacy issues. So some people say, well, they must have seen something we didn't see. You know, I wasn't obviously in those boardroom meetings, but I will tell you that I know that people were clearly didn't think it was a smart idea. But there were, you know, other folks who said, no, 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 this technology is so amazing. And remember, Monsanto was the largest genetically engineered seed company in the world. This isn't, from a, from, an, from a business perspective, you can see the allure, which is, this is like a software. And this is, by the way, how they think about it in that industry. They think of like the seeds as like floppy disks, okay. right? It's like, this is a software that goes into every computer. It's like, you know, the Microsoft Office suite, you know? If And so if we have these seeds, then we really are in control. Like this is our way of deploying whatever technology we want. If we can acquire Monsanto, we've got this great advantage. You can see that counter argument. Yeah. But given these legacies, it's like, what were they doing? So they worked to negotiate a settlement for the vast majority of those cases. I think some 90,000 of them okay. set aside something like $15 billion to do that. $15 yeah. billion. But the thing is, there's tens of thousands of cases that I know because I've been talking to people and things like that, that aren't going to settle, you know? Okay. So they're stuck in a way. I don't know what the, the everybody should be watching this, this Bayer story, because this is, it's, it's, it's a saga that I never saw coming. And I don't know how they get out of this. Well, and I, you know, I find myself wondering if this is a gamble that still may pay off. I mean, I get it. You know, I, anybody in that business, anybody in any, you know, we're watching the, the, the food demand story, right? And I'm looking for opportunities to invest in food production. And I found some cool companies uh, building like vertical farming equipments and, and all sorts of neat stuff, right? I think we can follow this narrative and, and say, we, yeah, it's an important sector to, to, to follow or invest in if you're looking for that. Um, so put yourself in Bayer's shoes. It's like, yeah, there's some massive risk with this acquisition, but it's, it's Monsanto. They're the largest provider of seeds in the world in a world that's going to be increasingly underfed 
you know, yeah. arguably, right? So, you know, can can they navigate this and come out on top still? I think it's yet to be determined from a corporate standpoint, not ethically, and it's a different conversation, but. But but Jay, I think one thing I would say, and like this great point is, but I would just add that the reason I think my book is different than other books on Monsanto that people might pick up if they're an investor or somebody that's interested is that it, it shows you the other liabilities that are there. Roundup is just one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. PCBs, the thing that people should go out and read about right now is that uh, states, pull on states, you know, like Washington State, uh, Maryland are, are, are filing suit against Monsanto right now for cleaning up PCB contamination. And by Monsanto, I mean Bayer. So on top of Roundup right now, you have states that are saying, wait a minute, these PCBs are still in our environment. They're still affecting people's health. This company never cleaned it up in the 60s and 70s. We're going to make them pay. Sure. So on top of the Roundup litigation, yeah, you've got yeah. this huge liability with PCBs. Um, and then we didn't, you know, we haven't really talked about Agent Orange, but that's that's ongoing still. Yes. Uh, yes. So yeah. And there's so, so we could. Okay, that's a great counterpoint. And it's it'll be interesting to watch then, therefore, how this plays out. Can, can you navigate this storm? Uh, but where I want to go next, though, just because there's two big buckets I still want to cover with you. So I'm, I'm watching the clock here. But on a personal level, Bart, you spent eight years writing Citizen Coke, another close to decade writing seed money. You've been very you know, buried in, in the underbelly of some of the largest corporations that produce products. We've been sold there safe. How do you, therefore, navigate? I guess my question is like, I'm a capitalist. I don't know of a better system, right? There's downsides to capitalism, absolutely. And we just covered a bunch of them. But what's the alternative? I don't know of a better system. Um, when I look at relationships that can be built between organizations like the EPA and the FDA between, and corporations to get products on the shelf, how do you navigate the world? You know, after after diving into, you know, topics of this depth, you know, when it comes to things like trusting the products you're purchasing, you've got two young kids, when it comes to trusting the food supply, trusting the water supply, right? How do you, how do you, how do you, how do you do that? <laughs> That's such a good question, Jay. I'll tell you, when I was down in Brazil, uh, I was with a farmer, some farmers talking about Roundup and all this stuff. And we I told them about all the things I've uncovered so far and stuff. And the guy just turns to me and uh, he was speaking English in kind of an accent. And so he said to me, he said, Bart, never write about beer. <laughs> the point was, he didn't want to have beer pulled from his list of things he couldn't consume, you know. Ignorance is bliss. Yeah. And I feel that too. You know, there are times, uh, and, in, and during the pandemic, I, I, I'll have to say, like, I've let loose some of my rules and, like, right, you know, because I just, I needed some sanity, you know. And mm. uh, what, and what kind of rules? Talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, just trying my best to limit the amount of pesticides, chemicals that I might have in my food by choosing for, you know, and again, I'm very aware that this is not a choice that everyone has in terms of buying organic or buying, you know, yes. at the farmer's market or knowing your farmer, Yeah, uh, which I had the luxury of doing at times, you know, and, and really spending time to, to develop relationships so that you feel good about the food that you're eating, you know, you know, may, maybe, maybe curbing those that those rules a little bit here and there and, and, and getting a guilty pleasure every now and then over the pandemic has been what I've done a little bit, but no, I, I mean, seriously, I do live the history that I've written about. I, I think about it all the time, given the murkiness of what we can know about 
and it's not just Roundup, you know, I think Roundup is interesting and it's complicated and there's a lot of discussions about it. But as I said, dicamba, I mean, one of the things that's happening now is because we're creating all these resistant weeds, we're spraying more herbicides and a variety of them to try and deal with all these weeds that are getting resistant to different herbicides. And we're using more herbicides than we ever did before. Right. We think maybe we're getting more environmentally friendly. Actually, it's the opposite when it comes to herbicides. So it's the confluence of all these chemicals in our food system that scares me the most. The interactions between them that one can't possibly know what it means to, on a day-to-day basis, be consuming small amounts of dicamba, small amounts of glyphosate, small amounts of these things. So to your point, whenever I possibly can, I'm trying to eat food that I know was grown in a way that didn't have those pesticide inputs. And that's not just because I care about my kids and I do. I mean, I look at them every day as we all do as parents. And it's just like, you know, you just feel this visceral sense of protection. But it's also because I care about workers. You know, I care about people who produce my food. And they're getting exposed to this stuff on a much higher scale. You know, when you're talking about Roundup or, you know, herbicides or pesticides. And so if you care not only about your family, but you care about the people who produce, who make your daily bread, then I think you really have to think, how can I with my dollar? And it's only one action. I get that. It's not a structural change, but it can make a difference to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to purchase stuff that is connected to that world, you know, that's connected to an agricultural system that in my mind, clearly from this book, after spending 10 years on it is broken. You said water. Yeah. I mean, I have an APEC filter in my house, a five layer reverse osmosis filter. Talk about, you know, not everybody can have the access to do that. Although I will say it's cheap. It's, you know, relatively cheap. It's like $150 to install. Uh, you can do it yourself. Uh, change out the filters every six months. And I did that because I had chemistry students here at Ohio State even come in to test our tap water and, you know, just low levels of stuff that's in our tap water. Agri- we're in an agricultural state. So the agricultural runoff that comes into our water supply, you know, I'm a stickler for that kind of stuff. You know, I just don't want on a daily basis to have you know, and maybe, maybe I'd be fine, you know, um, that's great, but I'd rather not take the risk. There are cool technologies in terms of water filtration that we now have that we, d- we definitely do that in our house and, and we care about these things. So I think you're, you, it's interesting, you touched clearly on a nerve in a way like it's changed my life doing this type of work. You know, it's made me be much more careful as a spouse, as a husband, as a parent. Um, and I'm, I'm happy that I've learned this stuff. I, I'd rather not be ignorant. <laughs> about the number of chemicals that are out there, given how many there are and yeah. how many questions I have about them. Well, I, you know, it's, it strikes a chord with me too, because at the, at the foundation of all the content I produced and when I started, you know, my podcast and, and my YouTube channel, it came from a place of demanding financial sovereignty, right? personal sovereignty. But for me, you know, where I sat at the moment, it was, it was financial confidence and independence, right? And you know, as you can follow that sovereignty thread, right, to a place of, you know, we're, we're all, we're on our own out here, right? And it's really important to recognize that no one's got your back, right? And that's fantastic news, because it puts you in the driver's seat, actually, right? But as soon as you want to hand over control to call it government bodies, or, or whatever, like the FDA or the APA, you know, you're, you're, massively compromising your future in a variety of ways. And that's not to point the finger and say, they're, they're, there's conspiracies at play, they're bad actors, all this stuff. I think it's a, it's a real false sense of security to, under, to think that an organization like the APA or the FDA can actually have the bandwidth 
right? To make so such a wide breadth of good decisions in everybody's best interest is never going to be realistic to expect that. So to put yourself in the driver's seat, like, yeah, it takes a lot of work to, to maybe think critically and, and, uh, uh, but your but your water supply and understand that you know may, maybe we shouldn't be consuming all these phthalates every day. Maybe it's not maybe it's not a great choice, right? Glyphosate's yeah. in our food system. Yeah, I think you know I uh, totally hear you, and I think I might put it slightly differently. I mean, one thing I would at least say is having talked to EPA people and things, I do respect the work they do, and I really care about you know. There's a lot of good people trying to do the right thing and trying to regulate, trying to step in and make sure their bad actors are held accountable, and so. I feel for these agencies that are often underfunded and undersupported and, and these types of things. But you're right. I mean, one of the things I say in this book, or especially on this tour I've been on, is that speak up, you know, like, but if something's being sprayed next to you and your neighbor, you know, or wherever yard, or if it's on somebody else's farm, like, ask questions. As you said, don't expect that somebody's there that's out there monitoring the water supply and making sure it's okay. Because I will tell you, you know, the, the EPA doesn't have that capacity to do that on the scale we think it does to be yes. get to that granular level, you know. Yeah. So I think the big the big lesson of this book and to me is, yeah, you have to be watchful. You have to be asking questions. You have to be pounding on doors. You have to be the one that says, like, hey, like, what are you spraying? I want to know more about it. Like, yeah, you know, because um, I think we think people are watching, but in many cases they're not. And I yeah. think that's that's good good advice. Yeah, we think people are watching, right? We think someone's got our back, right? This is on the yeah. shelf. It's regulated. Therefore, it must be safe, right? That's what yeah. FDA exists for, right? But to your point, it's, it's and again, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying, you know, it's a mistake to point the finger and say they're obviously evil, right? It's yeah. no, it's a bandwidth issue. It's an unrealistic expectation to think somebody else could have your back across all facets of your life. You got to take control. You're the only one that can, right? Yeah, there's a lot of things we can do. And I think just, you know, and that also, you know, I think involves, there's a lot of public hearings, for example, in this story. Um, I think of the Roundup story where Roundup is made in Soda Springs, um, Idaho. And it's this crazy story. Roundup creates radioactive waste of all things when you manufacture it, which is just bizarre. And I never expected to see that. I ended up camping out there at a super fun site. Uh, not the best camping experience of my life, I say, you know, worrying about what my exposure to, to toxic waste, but, but you got to get the story. So that's what you do. And, you know, I'm out there and, and, and reading these documents while I'm there too, you know, they're holding these public hearings, but sometimes people just don't show up, you know, like it's that kind of lack of just like, but what if people did show up? What if people had raised their voice and said, you know what, like, this is wrong. What's happening here? Like, mm. could, could there have been change? So I think, yeah, this is a story of, and the Citizen Coke, you know, just to put a fine point on that again, the title for me was a story of citizen empowerment. I wanted people to see at the end of the book that, like, stop waiting for Coca-Cola to fix our problems. You know, right. everyone keeps saying that it's like corporate responsibility. And what can Coke do to solve the problem? Like, stop waiting for Coke to solve your problem, you know, yes. whether it be a, a health problem, I'm going to drink Diet Coke or whatever. We are the ones who pay for recycling. We're the ones who pay for that. We're the ones who built that. So mm -hmm. we can be the ones, the citizens of this country who, who shape the future and make it better. So I love yeah. that. I love yeah. that. Now let's let's uh so you know there's there's a there's a need for uh products like what Monsanto produces because we rely on monocrop agriculture, which is incredibly unnatural and therefore very vulnerable to pests and et cetera, et cetera. And so in order to make that system work, we had to make other chemicals to facilitate it so 
you know, a question for you, Bart, like based off what you've learned, is, is it possible, right? Would it be possible for the United States, for example, to transition to um, regenerative agriculture at enough scale to feed the country, right? Is that a possibility? I think it's not only a possibility, but it has to be for okay. the future. As we're, as we're saying, I mean, you know, if, you re, if you're following this as closely as people like myself and others who, who really dove into this deeply, when you look at weeds that are developing resistance to herbicides and pest, the chemical input system that we have, when you look at the tremendous fossil fuel input that's needed to sustain the current style of agriculture, that's not going to work. If you're if you're leg, if you're legitimately going to say we're not going to be a fossil fuel economy, you know, 10, 20 years down, 20, 30 years down the road. Um, and so I think regenerative is not just a possibility. It's got to be the way we think. And and that's where I might I might say, you know, when it comes to structural things, I, I do think that the state played a big role in getting us into this situation, the USDA and subsidies that were provided to make this possible. Unfortunately, because of those choices, I do think there's going to have to be some structural changes that help us get to regenerative agriculture. Okay. You know, the subsidy systems that are in place now that are supporting what I see as a broken agricultural system. You know, maybe a way to transition to regenerative is to see if we can channel some of those funds to help farmers retool, to help them readapt to a different style of agriculture. But it's going to be a long road. We we have a long way to go. But what I will say, what I'm heartened by is just that people are talking about regenerative. You're talking about it, Jay. You know, like I feel like it's becoming a term that's more. Uh, it's not seen as pie in the sky. And I think mm -hmm. for some reason it's it's getting more traction than organic, which I think, for whatever reason, was vilified as as being so niche and not not you know not possible on scale and things like that. It's nice to see that people are talking about regenerative mm. and saying we can do this with 5,000, 6,000, 10,000 acres, you know, right. and, and believe it. So and farmers are showing also that it can be profitable. That's I think that's that's a good news for us. Right. Yeah. Do you think part of this transition in order for it to be successful will be consumers adjusting our expectations like globalization's provided me an incredible amount of conveniences like I live in the Pacific Northwest. It's really cold here but I can have bananas fresh whenever I want. Maybe that's not something I should have access to uh, in a sustainable world. What do you think about that? From start to finish, uh, you know, you, you, you've been just teeing me off in our conversation. <laughs> like, I was going to say banana because, you know, that's the classic example. If anyone's interested in this, another great historian, uh, John Stolori, a book called Banana Cultures. That's all about this, that, that part of it, it does have to be just accepting maybe a red banana, for example, you know, we, we, we want a Cavendish yellow banana, which by the way, tastes terrible. Uh, <laughs> if you've ever tasted other bananas, there's so many other great bananas, but they don't, some of them, you know, they, they bruise easily or some of them, you know, they don't look that great on the outside, but they're tasting the inside. Mm. Um, part of it is expectations. And also maybe saying, do I need a banana this time? Could I get it some, some other time? I think, you're absolutely right. And uh, we, we have a system that just makes it think that those things are normal. Uh, the, the banana is just being there every day. And trust me, my kids go through enough to make me think that uh, how would we survive? But, but it is about us. And it goes back to it. I think I'm, I'm, I'm seeing, Jay, some of the things that you're, you're, you're excited about. I mean, I think 
we can be a part of that change. You know, we can make the decisions to say, okay, that tomato has a blemish on it, but it's okay. Like expecting that perfect uh, looking fruit yeah. is, is part of the problem for sure. Right. Okay. Now I want to ask you to wrap up here for a couple couple pieces of advice that we could share with my audience. Now it's it's easy to, um, you know, we, we both said, yeah, it's, it's maybe sometimes hard to make the changes towards healthier options, right? Organics more expensive. You got to add filtration systems to your water, all this stuff, but not everything um, adds complications. For example, you know, we have a super, I don't know, I feel like we have a pretty clean household when it comes to food. My friends think we're incredibly complicated because they see our diet as all the things we won't or don't eat, right? Which is one way to look at it. The way I look at it is I'm like, no, it's really basic. It's called plants and animals, right? That's yeah. it. You know what I mean? It couldn't get any simpler, to be honest with you, right? We just, we just, we eat what we eat. And it's, it's not about all the things we don't or we avoid. It's just about what we allow in our household. When it comes to navigating this, like, you know, are you growing your own food? Um, are there some simple, simple rules or pieces of advice that you could share with my audience so that they could take some easy steps towards a healthier, less exposed diet? Let's start there. Yeah. 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 You know, my friend put it this way, because it sounds like we have similar friends. You know, one of mine said, uh, when I was telling him about what I was going to eat for the day, he said, well, Bart, I don't have a tortured relationship with food. And, uh, you know, I wanted to come back with him and say, I don't either, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not tortured. In fact, it's bountiful and great and yummy and delicious. Uh, it's just thoughtful. And I think you're, I think the first thing I would say is it's easy to not pay attention, you know, and, and to just be okay with just accepting, just eating what's ever put on your plate for you. Kind of what you were saying. I mean, like kind of, a. a uh, just a kind of herd mentality of I'm at this restaurant. And so I'm just going to eat what they give me. Um, I, I joke that one of the, or not joke, but I say, you know, one of the biggest pieces of advice I'd say is if you're at a restaurant or whatever, ask questions, you know, like what's, where does, where's that, where's this from, you know, or like, where's it sourced from? And I often will not eat certain things because nobody can tell me where it's coming from. Um, and, you know, they don't, and sometimes I'm often astounded with what I hear. This comes from this farm. This is the relationship we have with them. This mm -hmm. is what, you know, and that kind of thing. And I think, and that's what I mean about being a nag, you know, uh, which I said earlier, just be a nag, you know, and not in a meat, like in a way that's just, that, 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 I guess that term makes it sound like you're going to be sound like a jerk, but ask questions, you know, when you're at the grocery store, look at the label, pay attention. I think, you know, staying away from non-GMO products especially when they actually are non-GMO. Now, non-GMO salt, like that's just silly, you know, and you're going to see products like that. Don't be fooled by that kind of stuff either. There is no non-GMO salt, you know? It's just, like, that's part of the problem too, is we these labels and things are all over the place. Knowing enough about the food system to say, it doesn't matter with salt. It's yes. salt, right? you know? But it does matter with uh, corn. Yeah. And it does matter with soybeans. And so going in there and saying, okay, when it says non-GMO on this, it means they're not spraying during the growing season, glyphosate and, and uh, you know, uh, dicamba on this stuff. That makes me feel good. Organic, you know, again, is another great label. There are still some chemicals that can be used and, uh, on those products, but, but generally they're, they're more natural based. It's just a better choice. 
So I think, you know, asking those questions. And, and like I said, when, when you're watching out in the world, something happening, something being sprayed, a chemical happening around your property or around where you live, ask questions, be a voice. Because as we said, oftentimes no one's watching. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you're your best guard and defense, not only for yourself, but you could protect your neighbors and people around you from harm that they don't even know is, is going on in their backyard. So I'm that guy. I try and do it. As you can see, I'm not a not a mean person. <laughs> I try and, you know, I try and do it with a smile and, and have a conversation. But I'm always asking questions, you know, and always trying to push people to tell me where things come from and what this compound is that's, you know that's going to be sprayed near where I live and where my kids play. Right. Bart, look, I love it. You're a really important voice and you ask really important questions. So I I really appreciate you. And thanks so much for coming on and chatting with me. It means the world. Jay, this was really a pleasure. I mean, honestly, it really means a lot when people read work that you work so long long and hard on and ask good questions about it. So I I now be tuning in a lot to your, to your show and listening in. Sweet. That's great. Well, I can't wait to see what you, uh, what you author next, man. And what a journey, like eight years on the first book, 10 years in the second. Did I get that timeline right? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing. And historians are so different than journalists because, and they're great journalists, you know, will take a story and sometimes pop out a book in two years. I don't know how they do it, but you know, you sit a lot of the time with this the material. And so this is the best part of what we do, getting to connect with people like yourself. And yeah. it's just, I really, it's an honor to, to be able to chat with you. So thanks. The best part of what I do is getting to read a book and then chat to the author about it, man. It's the best. <laughs> Everybody should start a podcast for that reason, I swear. Okay, look, yeah. man, I appreciate your time. It's been great getting to know you, Bart, and uh, I'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah, I'll, I'll look you up if I'm ever up in your neck of the woods. 100%, man. All right, man. Thanks a lot. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.